Genesis chapter 19, the whole thing. The two angels came from Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and bowed himself with his face to the earth, and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house, and spend the night, and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called out to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so we can know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under my shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal with you more worse than them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck blindness. They struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape to your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. 
Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he, over, when he overthrew the cities in which God had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. She did not know when she, he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made, him, they made their father drink wine that night. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. And the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Lord, we pray now for your blessing on this preaching of your word. We ask that it would have its divinely intended effect in our hearts. And we thank you for passages that discomfort us because they get our attention. Whether for good reasons or bad up front, and we pray that having seized our attention, that we would keep our attention on you until we are done listening to everything you want to say to us. Amen. When I speak of the judgment of God, friends, what, what comes into your mind? I'm going to give you time to think, so that's not just a rhetorical question. When I speak of the judgment of God, what, what comes into your mind? An old preacher railing on and on about how everyone's going to go to hell? 
Maybe you think about what you've seen on, I mentioned protesters earlier when I was praying. Maybe, maybe you think of something you've seen on a sign on TV where some crazy religious group was doing something at a, a demonstration. Maybe your thoughts have been more personal. You feel a, a gnawing dread in your soul that whispers to you, you'll, you'll never be good enough. Or maybe you think of, of what you hope will happen to that person who ruined your life or devastated somebody else that you love. Maybe, you, maybe your thoughts are more cynical. You're, you're convinced, or at least you're wondering, if this whole judgment of God thing is just a myth invented by the church to manipulate and scare poor, innocent people into submission. There's no actual truth to any of it. It's just all a power grab. And even if it is real, what's the big deal? It's not like I'm a bad person or anything. In case you're not aware, what we have just read in Genesis 19 is not uncommon in the Bible. You, you might be a, a non-Christian listening, maybe it's a, a first time in church, and you're thinking, oh yeah, I've heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. That, that represents everything I hate about God and the Old Testament. Well, just to make you even more uncomfortable, Everything God's going to say to us here, he says over and over and over again in this book. I'm sorry. <laughs> we have to deal with it. We can't relegate Sodom and Gomorrah and all that conjures in our mind, the judgment of God and all that brings up in our mind to some dark ancient Near East corner where unenlightened people hadn't gotten the degree they need to know that actually God's a God of love. The judgment of God is a dominant theme in the Bible for good reason, church. Because it confronts us with a critical aspect of the eternal character of God, namely that he is a God of justice. That's the main point, by the way, of Genesis 18. If you weren't with us last week, that our God is a God of justice and his justice will always prevail. That's the point of Genesis 18. But the reason Genesis 19 also exists in your Bible and the Lord Jesus in his infinite wisdom did not let this episode and this story disappear into the annals of time is because God knows that that reality, he's a just God and his justice will prevail, is not something that belongs in your religious junk drawer. It's designed by God. He's a just God. His justice will prevail to have a powerful effect on the heart of every man and woman. There's an intended effect, an impact God has in view, and that's why Genesis 19 is here. So think of it this way. If Genesis 18 establishes the reality of God's righteous judgment, Genesis 19 establishes the divinely intended effect on the heart of man 
of God's righteous judgment. And it reveals that effect by contrasting, because this is a helpful way to help human beings like us understand things, right? By contrasting the wrong responses that we tend to have to the judgment of God with God's intended response, the right response. So we're going to see a contrast throughout this passage. So, so here's my plea to you, okay? Regardless of how you answer my first question, what comes into your mind when you think of the judgment of God, okay? No matter how you answer that, here's my plea to you, all right? Listen to what God is saying to you in this passage. And then honestly ask yourself, as you're hearing me today, is what God says the intended effect of his righteous judgment should be having that effect in my heart. Ask that again, again, again. Is what God says about the intended effect of the reality of his divine judgment having its divinely intended effect in my heart? And if you just said, yes it is, and pulled out your smartphone to do something else, stop. (laughs) We need more help than that. We need help. So, I'm going to give you the intended effect up front, and then we'll look at this more closely. Okay? Here's the the intended effect of the reality of the judgment of God as, as we see it in Genesis 19. Okay? Here it is. In view of the coming judgment of God, forsake the world and flee to Christ. That's the intended effect. In view of the coming judgment of God, forsake the world And flee to Christ. In other words, given the reality that God is just and his righteous judgments will prevail, stop living for the sinful pleasures of this world and run to Jesus. Why? Because he's a merciful Savior, friend. He's a merciful Savior. And he will not fail to deliver those who trust him and those who keep on trusting him to rescue you from the judgment of God. View of the coming judgment of God, forsake the world, and flee to Christ. That's the divinely intended effect. So how do we know that's the case? I never want you to believe something just because you hear it coming out of my mouth. You should be asking now, all right, Williams, where is that in the word? Okay? God answers that. He proves that's the divinely intended effect in two ways, okay? God does two things in here, two points for the sermon. Point number one, how do we know that's the intended effect? One, because the Lord is faithful to warn us. He's faithful to warn us. So look at verse one, okay? Verse one opens, chapter 19, with two angels arriving at a city called Sodom in the evening. That obviously means that the sun has gone down, so the place is dark in a physical sense, but it's also dark in a spiritual sense. Why do we know that? Because of what we already learned back in Genesis 13, where we were told that the men of Sodom are wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And the arrival of two angels, who appeared as men, in Sodom is actually the fulfillment of a promise that God made to a man named Abraham back in Genesis 18, verse 20, where the Lord said to Abraham, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, Gomorrah was close to Sodom, in case you're wondering, and their sin is very grave, the Lord says, I will go down to see 
whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. We looked at that last week. And so when these two angels come to Sodom in fulfillment of the word of God, what do they find? Well, they find a man named Lot, who's Abraham's nephew, and he's doing what? He's sitting in the gate. Don't overlook that. There are not throwaway words in Scripture. That's significant because it tells us something of Lot's position in the city. I I like how Bruce Waltke points this out. He says, the gate was the physical symbol of collective authority and power. And Lot's presence here suggests that politically, he has become one with the Sodomites, if not a leader among them. That's important. He's no longer just sojourning visiting Sodom. Sodom, as it were, has taken up residence in him. And yet, when he sees the two men, what does he do? He, verses 2 and 3, welcomes the two angels, whether he knows they are or not yet, with eager hospitality, just like who? Abraham did in the previous chapter. And, And the similarity between these two men at this point is the author's way of affirming for us that, like Abraham, Lot is a righteous man. He's a righteous man, and his hospitality reflects the character of a generous, righteous God. But that's not the main reason the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2 describes Lot as, quote, a righteous man. Okay, the main reason, 2 Peter 2 verse 7, is that righteous Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. You just feel the tension. He's he's tormenting his own soul. Because he's living in Sodom. And yet he's a righteous man. And so it comes as no surprise that he insists on his two guests spending the night in his home, not in the town square. And he knows, at least he thinks he knows better than they do at this point, why that's so important. And it's clear by the time you get to verse 4 that that was a really wise decision. Look at verse 4 and 5. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. They called out to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Okay, now that word know has a lot of different meanings in the Bible. And that fact doesn't mean that we can take what it means in one place, and because we like that meaning, pick it up and plug it in here. What do we have to do? We have to say, Lord, in what way are you using the word no here? Here, right? And he helps us with that. He helps us with that because in this case, just like it does in verse 8, if you look there, 
as well as five other places in Genesis, the word know refers to sexual relations. It's not the only thing it means every time it's used in the Bible, but clearly in this context, which verse 8 confirms, as well as in five other places in the book of Genesis, it is explicitly referring to sexual relations. And so the the New International Version brings this out when it says in verse 5, bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. It's not ambiguous. And the evil in their desire, friends, isn't simply that they demanded gang rape as opposed to consensual sex. Okay, though, though that was unquestionably wicked. A significant part of the evil in their desire that that no doubt tormented Lot's righteous soul day after day after day included the fact that their sexual desire was homosexual in nature. And the word of God confirms that that's the case in Jude verse 7 where we read, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire or literally in Greek different flesh. And because it may be fair to say this is a hot topic in our culture right now, I'm going to make a few quick comments because I love you. Okay? Hear this. The God who created our sexuality does not leave sexual ethics up to the eye of the beholder. He doesn't. The God who created our sexuality roots and grounds sexual ethics all the way back in Genesis 2 in the doctrine of creation. That's what he does. And so in Genesis 2, the Lord creates men and women in his image, right? And he restricts sexual activity to the covenant relationship between one man and one woman married for life. It's God's created design for sex. Now, that doesn't mean, please hear this, that in a fallen world corrupted by sin, that we won't experience other kinds of sexual desires, okay? Including same-sex desires. But that does mean, friend, that those desires are never morally neutral. We are never given the privilege that this would be judgment, of saying, because I feel it, it's right. Or because I've always felt it, it's good. You could say that if the world wasn't corrupted by sin, but it is corrupted by sin. And that corruption affects every part of this world, including my heart. Our sexual desires and the same-sex desires in view here are not morally neutral because of sin. And in this case, what do we have? A sinful desire in the hearts of these men that like every other sinful desire you and I ever experience all the time, including this morning, should send us crying out to God because he's the only one who can deliver us from sinful desires. Amen? Keep that together. Because we need to keep crying out to the Lord for that deliverance, even if we have to wait for heaven to experience it in full. All that to say, 
It doesn't take long for God's messengers to confirm that Sodom was doing exactly according to the outcry that had reached the ears of the Lord. And it's not just a few bad apples. Look at verse 4. It's the entire city. The men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man. What is that reinforcing? The justice of God, right? It's not just a few bad apples here. It's the entire city given over to corruption. And Lot courageously goes outside. He pleads with his neighbors to don't do wickedly, don't act so wickedly. And and in desperation, he reveals, does he not, just how far living in Sodom had corrupted his own moral sense. Verse 8, behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men. He's condemning one moral outrage with the same breath that he suggests another. Does it surprise you, friend, that Scripture, the inspired Word of God, would call that man, 2 Peter 2, three times righteous? Well, I, for one, am profoundly grateful it does. Because it reminds me that the Lord has a category for a man or a woman who is righteous, who is right with him, and at the same time is struggling with sin of the worst sort. I'm thankful for that category. Because we live in that category. For most of us, it just doesn't get written for all the ages to see. And the Lord knew Lot was helpless. I mean, it's clear by this point that he can't protect his guests. He can't protect his daughters. He he can't even protect himself. And an angry mob closes in to to kill or rape him or both and break down his door. And at that moment, the angels who appeared as men, they reach out their hands. They grab Lot inside the house. They shut the door and they strike everybody outside with blindness. That shutting of the door is, is akin to what the Lord did for Noah. I'm going to protect you. Not because you're perfect, clearly because you're mine. And the picture, look at verse 11. Oh my. The picture of small and great wearing themselves out, groping for the door. That, oh, picture that in your mind. Friend, that is a warning to you. Remember the main point, the Lord is faithful to warn us. That is a warning to you from the Lord. You know what that warning is saying to you? As you see those blinded men refusing to stop, still groping for the door. That's a warning that sinners will not prevail against the Lord. You cannot prevail against the Lord. Even when it's wearing us out, however, we won't stop. Why? Because we're enslaved. We're trapped. 
And that by virtue of our universal decision to follow our own desires instead of submitting our desires to the Lord. And you know what that means, friends? That means you and I and every one of us, left to ourselves, deserve the righteous judgment of God no less than those men in Sodom. Let's make that clear. And so the two angels warn Lot, if you have anyone else in this city, buddy, bring him out of this place. Why? Verse 13, look there. For we are about to destroy this place. We're going to destroy it, Lot. Get out of here. Friends, Jesus speaks the same word of warning to you today about the judgment that he is going to bring on this world when he returns. Luke 17, 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, eating, drinking, Buying, selling, planting, building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. I want every one of you listening to me to be ready for that day. Every one of you. Because when you least expect it, when you don't see it coming, when you're in the middle of closing a deal, buying, selling, Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. And in that moment, friend, one thing is going to become blindingly clear to you if it hasn't already, and that's this. There is no one who does righteous, not even one. No one is good. You may not have committed sodomy, okay, but you're still a sinner. And left to yourself, you will most certainly, most certainly be justly condemned to eternal torment in hell under the righteous wrath of God because you, my friend, are a lawbreaker. As am I. And so as Lot warned his sons-in-law, so today I warn you, okay? Stop living for sin. Stop delighting in sin, making friends with sin. Repent of your sins. Because this could be the very last day that the Lord Jesus lets you live. Stop. Because when you die, it's going to be too late. And that's why the Lord is faithful to warn us. He's faithful to warn us. Judgment is certain. The question that remains is not if it's certain, but how will you respond given its certainty? And so I warn you, as Lot warned his sons-in-law, verse 14, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy this city, but he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. 
are you serious, old man? <laughs> okay, when has that ever happened before? Come here. Go back to bed. Hopefully you have no more of these scary dreams because right now you are freaking hilarious. I mean, what are the odds? We've seen this in movies, and it's pretty cool, especially when Denzel Washington shows up, but what are the odds that sulfur and fire are going to rain down from heaven tomorrow? I mean, it looks pretty crazy in Hawaii, but, you know, we're not in Hawaii. Go back to bed. Did you hear what? What a nut. That was the last night they lived on the earth. And they didn't see it coming. They, in view of the judgment of God, what did they do? Remember I said it would bring contrast? What did they do? They laughed. They laughed. Are you laughing, friend? Are you laughing at the judgment of God? I'm not talking about what comes out of your mouth primarily. I'm talking about the posture of your heart, okay? Because we laugh at God's judgment, listen, when we put off getting serious about our relationship with God until it feels convenient or life isn't so busy. We laugh when a Christian brother or sister challenges us about a pattern of sin in our life and we blow them off as legalistic or judgmental. We laugh when we saturate our mind and our heart with movies and TV shows that incessantly dull our heart to eternal realities. And we laugh when we refuse to share the gospel with other people, telling them through our silence that the reality of sin and judgment is, not, is either unimportant, a joke, merely our religious preference, but whatever it is, it's not urgent enough for you to know anything about it. We laugh. And that's a problem because the judgment of God is not a laughing matter. It's not a laughing matter. It's not a joke. It's real. And the Lord is faithful to warn us. That's why he warns us. It's as real as the day is that you woke up into today. It's real. It's coming. And so he warns us. Forsake the world. Turn away from sin. But hear me, friend. Don't stop there. Don't stop with forsaking the world and turning away from sin. Do that because God warns us, but don't stop there. Why not? Because that's not the only thing the Lord wants you to do in response to the reality of his judgment. There's a second thing. And really, it can't be separated from the first because it's two sides of the same coin. And you can't have one without the other, but each side is equally important. So in view of the judgment of God that's coming, don't, don't just forsake the world. What's the second part, remember? Flee to Christ, right? Forsake the world and flee to Christ. Why? Because the Lord isn't just faithful to warn us. He's also what? Point two, merciful to save us. He's faithful to warn us and he's merciful to save us. Okay, look at verse 15. Look at 15. If two angels came up to you and said, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city, how would you respond? 
all right. (laughs) I'm not so sure. Don't give yourself that much credit. (laughs) How did Lot respond? Look at verse 16. Three words. But he lingered. The problem is that Lot is a man in two minds. Two minds, right? Part of him believes the word of the Lord, that the day of judgment is real, that his only hope is to cling to the salvation that God is right then offering him. Lot, get up, get out. You don't have to die. I'm here to save you. Follow me. I mean, he said that to his sons-in-law the night before. But he's in two minds. Part of him believes that, but, but another part of him doubts. Is that, I said it, but is that really all true? Is it really true that, that life isn't found in the stuff of this world, that, that these possessions I see, that this wealth that I see, boy, it sure feels like life. I, I don't know if I want to leave all that. He, he had, as it were, a love affair with the world. And all it held out to him, even as that world teetered on the brink of destruction. The cost of of forsaking it just seemed too high. And his, his faith was too weak, so he lingered. And so as I asked you a few minutes ago, friend, are you laughing in response to the judgment of God? So I ask you right now, are you lingering? If you're not laughing, are you lingering, okay? We linger when our loyalties are divided. When we have one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the kingdom of this world, okay? We linger when our faith is weak. When part of our heart wants to trust Jesus and follow him, but another part of our heart says, I'm not so sure. We linger when we toy with sin, when when we flirt with what we know is wrong, but, but try to not go so far enough that our conscience gives us a lot of trouble and we can't keep saying, I know I'm okay because I'm a Christian. We linger when we try to obey God's commands, but we twist and bend them just enough so that we can still fit in a little bit of what we want to do. We linger when we hear God calling us to to give sacrificially, to give generously, to serve, but we drag our feet. We make self-care our highest priority and leave all that radical Christian stuff to other people. Friend, if that's you, if you are lingering, if you have the judgment of God, I want you to look at what the Lord Jesus does for Lot. Verse 16, so the men seized him and his wife, and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. You see that? The Lord being merciful to him. Behold the power of God in the life of Lot. Right? Where Lot's doubts left him hesitant, the Lord's mercy was decisive. 
Where Lot's fears left him weak, the Lord's mercy was strong to save. Okay, where Lot was immobile at the very moment he needed to run, what happened? The Lord's mercy did for Lot what Lot could not do for himself. The Lord isn't just faithful to warn us. He's merciful to save us. Those of you that have young children may know what I'm talking about. If you've ever had a young child that you were walking across a busy parking lot, and in the middle of that, they ask for something and you say no. And in that moment, they decide, I'm not moving another step. (laughs) Right? I want the lollipop that you got from the bank lady now. I have to have it now. And then they look up and they see a car coming. And you can see him starting to shake. But what do they do? Many a time, they don't move because they're stuck. They're they're trapped. They're in two minds. The car says, run. The lollipop says, insist. So what do you do as a parent? You take that child, cannot save themselves, and you pull them over to your car. And you pray to God you have a good attitude when you're doing it. And then you realize afterward that that's an illustration for a sermon about the mercy of God. But isn't that a picture, friends, of what the Lord Jesus Christ does for you and me? He grabs us. Two minds. I want to follow you. I don't know. You know what? Here you go. (laughs) It's mercy. Take comfort in that, Christian. You you who genuinely desire to follow Jesus, but, but you keep getting bogged down and mired in doubt and sin. The Lord's attitude toward you is one of steadfast love and mercy. Many of you have followed him for decades. And I dare say that if you're honest, that is the story of your life. Right? That time and time again, when your feet were slipping when you were caught in sin, when you were trapped in sin, when you were veering off the road of following the Lord, the God of mercy broke in and preserved your soul. He kept you. He broke in to your life. He empowered you. He saved you. He redeemed you. He's kept your faith from falling day after day and night after night. And that means seasoned saint who's going to have lunch and not me later this afternoon, that when you get to the end of your life, true for all of us, right, that the best eulogy over your life will not be that man or woman was amazing, but this, the Lord Jesus Christ was merciful. That's the banner over your life. What the Lord did for Lot is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ wants to do for you, Christian, again and again and again until he gets you home. And if you're not a Christian, know this, what the Lord did for Lot is exactly what he wants to do for you. He's not asking you to help yourself so he can help you. 
He's not asking you to stop. He's asking you to stop trying to save yourself, to stop trying to make your life work on your own and start crying out to him to change your heart and save you. Titus 3 verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own Mercy, the Lord being merciful by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You, you need mercy, friend, for the simple reason that you cannot save yourself from the judgment of Almighty God. You need mercy. You can't do that. You need the Lord to give you a new heart that's able to forsake the world, that's able to turn in faith to Jesus Christ, that's able to keep turning in faith to Christ until the day Christ in his mercy brings you home. He's done all that is necessary through his life, his death, his resurrection to save you. So cast yourself on him for mercy. Cry out to him for salvation. Ask him to rescue you from judgment the same way he rescued Lot. And how did the Lord rescue Lot? He commanded him to flee to the hills. And you know what happened? Lot doubted the word of God again. Because he's what? A man in two minds. He didn't believe that he could make it to the hills in time. Translation. Jesus, you're pretty cool, but you're not strong enough to save. I trust you, but part of me still doesn't. So what did the Lord do? He was merciful again (laughs) and allowed him to escape to a small town named Zoar. And his instructions were urgent and simple, okay? Don't look back. Don't stop. Escape there quickly. Now think about this with me, because these are the kinds of hard questions we have to ask when reading the word of God. Why, given he's in two minds, did the angels not grab him and walk him all the way to Zoar? I mean, isn't that what you're saying, Matthew? That, it, that it's, it's just all the mercy of God, and I'm just kind of passively along for the ride, and, and really I'm cool no matter what I do, because it's all about Jesus. No. That's not what I'm saying. Lot had to obey the Lord's command in order to be saved from the judgment of God for the exact same reason that you and I have to obey the Lord's commands in order for us to be saved from the judgment of God. That is not because your obedience is the ground of your salvation. That's because through your obedience, Christian, you express your trust in the God who saves His mercy is decisive. You know what your obedience is? Necessary. The lot, thankfully, chose to obey the Lord. He chose to obey. Though his faith was weak, it was genuine. Though he was in two minds, it was genuine. And he expressed his faith through obedience. He didn't look back. He didn't stop. He fled to Zoar. And when he reached the city, look at verse 24. The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. 
There's a whole sermon in that verse, but, but at a minimum, you should see there, friend, that the judgment of God is personal, it's final, and it's complete. So it will be at the end of the age. When Christ returns, personal, final, complete. Lot escaped with his life because the Lord was merciful to Lot. And Lot responded to the Lord's mercy by obeying the Lord. Not so his wife. She had the same opportunity, the same invitation. She, she experienced the Lord's mercy firsthand, but she didn't obey. Look at verse 26. She looked back and she became a pillar of salt. She was judged precisely where she looked back, just like Sodom. Okay, why? Well, don't read in your thoughts. Let Jesus give you his. Luke 17, verse 31. Jesus helps us understand what's going on in her heart. Listen, on that day, the Lord says, let the one who is on the housetop, he's speaking here of the day he returns to judge the living and the dead, with his goods in the house, not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Why? Because whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. What's Jesus saying? The Lord struck down Lot's wife not simply because of what she did with her eyes. The Lord condemned Lot's wife because of the condition of her heart. Though she initially appeared to obey the Lord. All, all her desires, all her affections, all her hopes remained bound up in the things of this world. In Sodom, she didn't have a divided heart like her husband. She had a united heart. And you know what it was united in? Clinging to life in this world. And by looking back, she showed her true colors. She, she didn't trust God to give her life. She remained fiercely committed to preserving her life in this world. And, and if you've ever seen the, the end of the Lord of the Rings, there's this gripping scene where, where Gollum is clutching the ring of power. Joy is on his face. And at the same time, he's falling into the heart of Mount Doom. That's what's going on here. Even in the midst of the destruction of all that gave her life, even in the midst of the clearest sign possible that that is no source of enduring life, Lot's wife still says, that's my life. It's the insanity of sin. She looked back. Friend, you cannot receive the life that is eternal, the life that God holds out to you, unless you're willing to let go of the life that's passing away. That's the reality. So be honest. Are you fixing your eyes on Jesus? Are you looking to Jesus to give you life? Or are you looking back? Are you looking to the world to give you life? I asked you earlier, are you laughing? Are you lingering? And so now I ask you now, are you looking back? 
Because we look back when we, we honor God with our lips, attending the meetings and singing the songs and using the lingo, but our hearts are far from him. We look back when we love and look to material possessions to give us comfort, convenience, security, instead of looking to the Lord for those things. We look back when we, we store up treasures on earth instead of treasures in heaven. We look back when we make physical fitness or bodily health our God. And we love the image in the mirror more than the God who gave it to us. I can't do any better than 1 John 2 in this regard. Verse 15, friend, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away. See Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed in the corner of your mind. That is what awaits the kingdom of this world, friend. Passing away with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Don't laugh. Don't linger. Don't look back. Flee to Christ. Flee to Christ. To conclude, Genesis 19 ends with a pretty sordid tale. Some of you are probably wondering, what is he going to do with this? Well, I'm not going to skip it, but I will summarize it because it does reinforce everything I have been saying. Listen, Lot didn't trust God to protect his life in Zoar, so he ran to a cave. Lot's daughters didn't trust God to provide husbands for them, so they slept with their father. If you look at verse 31, that reveals the crux of the issue. There's a repeated word there. Look with me. His daughters, what? Craved a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. They were like their mom. Their eyes were fixed on the earth the things of this world, even things that can be good things, marriage, children, and they were demanding that those things give them life. They saw their mom become a pillar of salt, but the seed of Sodom remained in their hearts. As as Alan Ross observes, it was, quote, the rebirth of Sodom in the cave. And to read this is to think, you should have known better, right? They should have known that that those who cling to life in this world will lose it, But, but they didn't know that. They didn't believe that. They didn't want to believe that. And so what did they do? They gave birth to two of Israel's arch enemies, the Ammonites and the Moabites. Please hear this, okay? Because this is amazing. Even in their sin, the Lord remained merciful. Do you know why? Because centuries later, a descendant of Abraham named Boaz married a Moabite woman named Ruth, who feared the Lord that she was born from incest. 
And together, they had a son named Obed, who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David, into whose line the King of kings and the Lord of lords was born. Never underestimate the power of God to redeem, friend. Don't do it. But do not take his redemptive mercy for granted. Don't underestimate it. Don't you dare presume upon it. Because the day of judgment is real, right? What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah is a foretaste of what is coming to this entire kingdom of the world. So don't laugh, don't linger, don't look back, forsake the world and flee to Christ. And keep on forsaking the world and fleeing to Christ. Why? Because Christ is merciful and he will not fail to rescue all who keep on clinging to him through the obedience of faith. First, 2 Peter 2.9 For the Lord knows. Hear this, friend. There are a lot of things in your life you don't know about this week. God knows something about you. Hear this. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. The Lord is faithful to warn you. He is merciful to save you. Run to Jesus, church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that just as Abraham interceded for Lot and you answered his prayer and saved that man, that right now in you, Christ, we have one who has been interceding for us and is not about to stop. We pray for help to heed your warning. We pray for help to run to your mercy for salvation. And we pray that as we linger now in a good way and sing these songs, that you would turn our sinful hearts away from laughing, away from lingering, away from looking back and back to Jesus. Do that, we pray. Amen.